Hello, thanks for joining us this morning. We will get started in just a moment. So good morning. I know everyone is still logging in. Uh, this is Leah Freeberg from Fluke Reliability and I want to thank you for joining us for this best practices webinar. A lot of you probably know Fluke as a test tool provider and you may also know that we produce some of the industry's favorite yellow reliability tools from infrared cameras to vibration meters. But you may not know that many of the measurements that our tools collect now flow automatically into EAM systems of record. It happens via a framework that we call Fluke Connect. So our goal at Fluke Reliability is to better connect all this asset management data and the teams with, with asset management systems to drive connected knowledge. And of course, that knowledge depends greatly on best practices in condition-based maintenance. So, that's why this series of webinars explores different strategies, and that's why we feature speakers from a variety of expert backgrounds. So before the presentation, we have a few housekeeping items to go over. Today's session is being recorded, so the phone lines will be muted to minimize background noise. We'll be answering questions both during the presentation and afterward during Q&A. So take a minute now and find the questions tool in the GoToWebinar dashboard. Please feel welcome to submit questions as we go. I will be monitoring your questions and I will share as many of them as time allows for our presenter to answer. If we have unanswered questions at the end, we'll follow up with written answers. If you'd like to receive the slides from today's presentations, please let us know during the survey that appears at the end of today's session. So don't hang up until the survey appears and you've answered the questions. We're also happy to send you a certificate of attendance after today's webinar. You'll see a question on the survey about getting a certificate. Answer yes, and we'll send one to you. A recording of this webinar will be available on the excelx.com website within a day or two. And that's it for housekeeping. So now on to the main event. Today, we are very pleased to have with us Chuck Pettinger of Predictive Solutions, a workplace safety expert and process change leader. He'll be presenting on building a culture of safety beyond the pandemic. Chuck is a process change leader at Predictive Solutions, a Fortive company. He has more than 30 years of experience in designing, implementing, and evaluating culture step change initiatives. His primary interests include developing large-scale corporate behavior change initiatives, assessing industrial safety cultures, using advanced predictive analytics to develop leading indicators, and conducting organizational leadership workshops. Chuck has consulted with a variety of companies and industries, including Bayer, Bechtel, Caterpillar, Chevron, Coca-Cola, ExxonMobil, Honeywell, Kaiser Permanente, Pfizer, TVA, Union Pacific, and others. He has earned his bachelor's degree from the University of Florida, his master's from Insular uh, Polytechnic Institute, and his doctorate from Virginia Tech. Most impressive. Thank you so much, Chuck, for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for the invite. And I'm really looking forward to this topic it's something that is really strikes home to me. And over the years of working, I've worked for a couple of different organizations and, and interacted with a lot. And I'm really proud of our organization because we have such a 
impassioned vision, which is to eliminate death on the job by 2050. And really we do that through a lot of different strategies. Primarily we have a, a software offering where we can track and trend safety observations, audits and inspections. And we use that data to predict where injury is going to occur. So that really motivates everything I do. But as you know, just collecting data is enough, right? To really impact the safety culture, what we need to do is act on that data. And that's kind of how I began. Um, when I first started with Predictive Solutions uh, 14 years ago, I was talking with the founder, Barry, and I was working at a project in China. And I was being kind of chaperoned around by a guy named Tim. Uh, that wasn't his real name, but that's what he asked me to call him. And I got to meet Tim's family. He you know, took me to all the different construction locations in Dalian, uh, China, got to meet his family. And as a matter of fact, he started out as just a regular craft worker. And he worked his way up in the ranks into a safety position. And he was making more than anybody in his family ever had made ever. And he was supporting uh, two other of his brothers um, and their families. So he was a really amazing guy. And I got home from that trip and uh, Barry called me up and he said, Chuck, I got to tell you that um, Tim died on the job. Uh, he was turned over in a, a man lift and it crushed me. And uh, Barry and I talked and at that time we were so frustrated because even though we were providing all these tools, all this data, right? If people don't use it, if people don't act on it, right? We can't do what we need to do to improve, right? So at that point, we really stopped and said, we gotta stop reacting to injuries and start predicting them. And that put us on this mission to develop these best in class policies, procedures, techniques to help companies be more proactive. But really, what really impacts it is the overarching culture. And part of the culture that's coming up is, is, is this whole COVID. Um, companies have changed what they've been doing. And I really think that we can kind of take this initiative and propel our safety culture afterwards. But I'm really kind of interested in how you guys perceiving that this is impacting your culture? It's a great question. And audience, this is your chance to contribute here. If you cannot click the radio buttons, then uh, simply minimize your screen view and you should be able to click. So our question here is, how concerned are you that COVID-19 is negatively impacting your culture? And you only get to select one, so make your best choice here. Are you extremely concerned, somewhat concerned, not that concerned, or not sure? And we'd like to get at least three quarters of the audience to chime in here so that we have an idea of where the team is at. And we have a question for you, Chuck. Um, someone's asking, can you clarify by what you mean by culture impact? So is it going to improve or do you think it's going to negatively impact, meaning uh, it's going to be worse off than where we were before COVID? So worse off you, how? 
Um, well, <laughs> I'm going to be talking about culture. <laughs> so I will answer that more when we get into the meat of the presentation. But I think just in general, do you think it's going to be worse off or better? In terms of the workplace environment? Yes. Okay. All right. Hopefully that's enough information for uh, that questioner to give us an answer. I am going to close the poll. We have, uh, there we go. We got over three quarters of the audience. Thank you so much, folks. All right. I'm going to close it and share the results with everyone now. You should be able to see on screen now that we have 37% extremely concerned and 40% somewhat concerned. And then uh, 23 in the not that concerned. But no one's in the not sure, so that's good. Chuck, what would you say to these results? Yeah, so that's that's interesting because, you know, the majority of people would say that, you know, you're concerned. And I think that if we frame this correctly, right, the things that we're doing in our organizations to keep people safe from COVID spreading it is really an idea of caring for each other. Mm not necessarily just wearing a mask for me it's wearing a mask for the people that i'm working with my work family uh -huh. right so i really think that we can propel like i said before this this opportunity where we've put in place um, systems and processes to keep people safe and use that to say this is all about looking out for our fellow workers uh -huh. Uh -huh. and um, <clears throat> company, we've been collecting a lot of data and uh, like I said, we have an app that collects this information, but just since February, uh, people have been putting in COVID uh, observations. And we've had over a million different observations, 24,000 opportunities for improvement, um, 5,214 different observers, different sets of eyes. And you can see that, you know, some people have seen some medium and some high severity issues so i really think that if we look at this in a positive frame right we have a lot of eyes out there looking and a lot of opportunities for improvement and if people think of this in terms of improving my environment improving the way that we look out for each other we can kind of use this to help move beyond the pandemic and into a more idea of looking out for each other so, so what kind of facilities are these that are reporting in, Chuck? Okay, so these are a combination of manufacturing, uh, oil and gas, uh, utilities, and construction. So there's probably about a dozen different types of industries that are represented in just these numbers. Um, so that's a lot of that's a lot yep. of data. It's a great cross section. Yeah, we'll be able to do a little bit more deep dive once you know this. Uh, is over. I'd like to see how quickly people are closing out these open issues and, and things like that. Okay, so let's talk about culture. Um, I, I read a lot about culture. I see a lot of people talking about culture. I've been to webinars about culture. And I know everybody on this webinar, right, since you came to this webinar, probably are interested in this idea of culture. But really, a lot of people only touch on what they believe is culture. And I'm going to talk about some of the struggles that people have, because in a lot of the companies that I've done consulting with, 
they might do a safety culture assessment once every other year, maybe once every five years, and that's not really enough time to make a difference. That's not really enough time to really get a feel for your culture. You need more just-in-time methods. And over time, cultures ebb and flow. So when you think about the, the cultures that you work in, when do safety cultures most often change? And I really think, right, I get brought into companies for two reasons. One, you have a serious incident or fatality, and now we're in reactionary mode. We're in the burning platform. Or second, they're really good and they want to go from good to great. And that's where a lot of companies are moving. So I see companies go through this and companies almost become organizationally complacent, right? Until something bad happens. And then what do we do? Well, we train them. We put them through a whole bunch of workshops. The problem with that is it's good, but it's not sustainable. We got to think about culture change as a, an ongoing process. I think there's a lot of programs out there, right? People throw out programs. Um, I want you to think about how you feel. Yeah, that's good, but how does it how does it interact with the overarching culture, right? So to get to this world class, we have to identify what we can do on a continual basis to move us from good to great. So when um, when I was deciding what to show, there's a lot of stuff I could talk about. I could spend a whole week talking about culture. Um, I'm going to specifically talk about how uh, climate differs from culture. And then I'm going to talk about creating this step change. How can we move from good to great? How can we take an organization that has a good safety culture and move it to a culture of safety that everyone embraces? And one aspect of this culture change that I'm going to focus on today is how leaders can help evolve and create a culture of safety. And then I'll finish up with a case study of a large global organization that I did some work with and how they impacted their own organizational culture. So let's talk a little bit about climate versus culture. Um, the climate of an organization is really kind of how people describe what is going on, what people see and report happening. Um, climate is really more of a leading indicator of culture. Climate is more here and now. Culture, on the other hand, is uh, why things happen. It's more of a, a global construct. It's more of a phenomenon. It's kind of like love, right? You can't really define love. It's a construct, just like culture. Now we can describe what we think is a good culture, but what we're doing by doing that is identifying the climate, right? So climate over time influences culture. So a little bit more specifically, right? Climate of an organization is the perceptions of what the organization in, is like in terms of the practices, policies, procedures, routines, rewards, all those things that are the day-to-day. -day. And it really focuses on the situation and links to the perceptions. And I really want to focus on that because when people and other companies tell you they have a cultural survey, it's really a perception survey. They're 
asking you your perception of the safety culture, which is really measuring the climate. Um, so if you are in the, in the, if you're shopping around for a culture survey, ask them to tell you what the difference between climate and culture is. And if they can, I would trust that survey. Um, some other things, uh, it really can be manipulated. So I can influence the climate of the organization by giving everybody a $10,000 raise at the end of the year, right? But it will not impact the overarching culture of the organization. Okay, so it's a lot more immediate than culture. Culture, on the other hand, is more fundamental ideologies, assumptions. It can really be influenced by symbolic events or artifacts, like when two large companies merge. Um, ExxonMobil, for example, I was doing work with Exxon when they were going through that. You know, a huge, huge thing that influenced the culture of both organizations. Um, if you have an influential leader leave, like Steve Jobs, right? That can influence the culture of the organization. Um, and really, culture is hard to impact on the short term. It's a lot more stable than climate, right? It takes a long time. Um, when you hear people say phrases like, that's how we've always done it around here, that is a cultural statement, right? So it really is resistant to manip manipulation, so if you give people a raise, that does not influence the culture. Now, if you do it consistently and with the right intent, it may eventually influence the culture, right? So it's really a construct. So when we talk about changing the culture, it is a five to 10 year journey. So don't think that you can do that just overnight, right? We have to develop a system and a process to help put our organizations in the right place to cultivate a culture of safety. So if that's the case, how do you assess a safety culture? Well, that is the key question because every organization has core values and you might go into your headquarters and you look on the wall and you see a vision statement or a mission statement. Our vision statement is to eliminate death by 2050, right? Those are the organization's core values or beliefs. You might have a mission statement or other objectives, right? Now, individuals have core values as well, right? We are the way that we're raised, the things that are important to us. And the way that we can evaluate core values is what we see people do. So if these are people's values and they do something that goes against those values, these aren't going to be very powerful, right? Yeah, you tell me you care about safety, but you want us to get the job done with not the right tools, right? So what we have to do is put ourselves in a place where these values are really demonstrated through the behavior of our employees. And that those behaviors create the environment for people to come and work in our organization. So when we have that environment and we see people doing particular things that says, yes, our leaders buy in and we have a, an environment that is focused on safety. So when new employees come in, what's the first thing they do? Well, they go through orientations and things like that, but really what they do is they look 
at what the values are of the organization. Okay, you're, you're telling me you think these three things are important. And then they look for validation. They look for what people are actually doing, what the leaders are saying, and does the environment really focus on that? And over around all of this is this idea of culture. So I got a question for you. Do core values and beliefs influence the culture or does the culture influence the core values and beliefs? I think this might be a good chance for people to chime in on the questions tool. I know there's a lot of hard listening going on out there. I can, I can feel this as you're describing the difference between climate and culture. And it feels a little bit like you're asking us a chicken and egg question here, Chuck. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good that's a good way of responding to it, right? Um, I think that if our core values are in line with the organization's core values, you're going to have a long-term employee, right? And you're going to have a better opportunity to change that culture, right? Or to sustain it. But if my core values are in conflict because of what I've seen people do or what I've seen leadership talk about, then I'm not going to be bought in and I'm going to erode the culture. Now, on the other hand, we might have a very strong culture that is resistant to change, right? So that might influence people's core values. If you think about uh, organizations like Ford, for example, like quality is job one. Right, that culture permeates to this day that whole organizational structure. So the culture really maintains those core values and beliefs. So if you really work with some of the um, fundamentally sound and successful companies, you will see the culture is driving the values and the values are driving the culture. So that's kind of the chicken and egg. So how do you assess that safety culture? That's the question. So trying to assess people value or people's values can be kind of tricky, right? You can ask them perception questions. You can actually look at what people are doing and interpret that, right? You can look at how we set up our environment, right? So if this is the definition, and this is a, a UK definition, um, safety culture is the product of individual and group values, attitudes, perceptions, competencies and patterns of behavior uh, with the U in it because they put the U in behavior um, that determine the commitment to and style and proficiency of organizations, health and safety management. So really these have some really powerful words, values, attitudes, perceptions, competencies, and behavior. So if you're wanting to set up your own safety culture survey, you can definitely do that. And what you're going to measure are these things, values, attitudes, perceptions, competencies, and behavior. And how do we leave a legacy? That's the mentality of safety culture. So what we have to do is identify cultural proxies. Since we can't measure culture directly, we're gonna get a proxy or leading indicators. I think there's some really good leading indicators out there that are cultural proxies. So if we can get more and more leadership engaged in safety, I think that's a good cultural proxy of having a good safety culture. So cultural proxies, um, they're really kind of substitutes, right? Conditions or behaviors that are representatives of a good culture. So 
if you had a really good safety culture, what would be examples of it? How would you know? So I'm gonna leave you with an art of, or a, an exercise to help you do this. So if you wanna create your own safety perception survey, right, here is a good exercise to do this. Now, this is how we'd set it up. Get a group of your employees together, um, break them up into groups of maybe three or four or five. And then what I want you to do is kind of outline this. Okay, so if we had the best safety culture and they were writing a Fortune magazine article about us, how would we have known things have changed? What are employees and leadership doing the same? What are they doing differently? And think about some of those, those power words, right? And then what you do is have your employees flip chart it, whiteboard it, and write down examples of what would be the same, what would be different, um, and how would we have gotten there? And by doing that, we're gonna do two things. One, we're gonna identify what is on a tip of the employee's mind, right? Because they're gonna write down the things that come to them first, like, well, in a world-class safety culture, we would have leaders who would really care about us. Okay, so, you know, caring might be one. Um, uh, and then, you know, we would have all the training we would need. We wouldn't have any injuries. So when you think about this, you list this, you have employees go through it, and now what you've done is you've identified cultural proxies. And what you do, instead of trying to say, well, we're gonna change our culture, you take one of these individual ones. So how can we demonstrate leadership caring about safety? What does that look like? And then just focus on one thing at a time and over, the different initiatives, we'll be able to see that culture change. So this isn't a new uh, exercise by any means. This has been done in the corporate room forever, right? But in safety, what do we look at, right? So how do we know we're gonna create a, a great safety culture when it gets to zero? Well, that's not really it, right? We need to look at different things. We need to look at what do we need to do to improve, evolve, and really get our culture to a place that is gonna be sustainable. So, so I think I'm gonna back you up just a sec because I think yeah. some people were envisioning running this exercise yeah. and being that facilitator, right? And you're asking some big questions that might get some big answers. Is, is there a wrong answer? <laughs> Good question. So this is what's fun for me. If I'm doing this with a group of employees and now, of course, if I'm an external consultant, sometimes employees are a little bit more open and right. honest right but sometimes you get questions or you get uh, responses and you're like mm -hmm, i know where a gap is it, well you know if they would give us the right tools i would be able to get my job done safer so yeah a uh, world-class safety culture would mean i'd have this better tool right and then what i try to do is get them to say uh how would you know right well they would be more caring well what does that look like so when you're you know, facilitating this, have them really identify what they could do to demonstrate that caring. Oh, well, they would attend our pre-job brief or they would share information with us. Uh, they would help us go through these, these workshops and not just blow off the second half of it because they have a better meeting to go to, right? So give them examples or um, have them give you examples on what that would be like. 
So this is really a, a fun exercise to facilitate. Yeah. That's helpful, thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. So now what I'm gonna do is go into a philosophy of how to create this step change, creating this culture of safety. A lot of people say, well, yeah, this sounds great, Chuck, but it sounds really intimidating. It sounds like we gotta do a lot of stuff. But all I'm gonna do is start off with a simple question. So if I were to ask you, how is safety motivated? Um, if you go up to any of your employees and you say, hey, why are you wearing that hard hat? You know, what would they tell you? Well, you know, because I have to. Um, or because it's OSHA rule. Now, some people might say, well, because I don't want anything falling on my head. Right? I have to duck underneath this machine all the time, and this bump cap keeps my head from getting cut. Right? And what I often hear is either external or internal responses to this question. So a lot of times people say, well, I have to do it because it's a rule. It's an OSHA regulation. Because my manager is watching me. Right? But the great safety cultures are the ones that they do it because it's the right thing to do. I'm doing it because I don't wanna get hurt. I'm doing it because I don't wanna see my coworkers get hurt, right? I'm doing it because it's the right thing to do. And if people are doing it for internal reasons, you're a lot more motivated than if you're doing it only because there's external things. Because- There's a couple of questions that just came up and yeah. you, might, you might be about to answer these. Um, the the first one um, from the audience is how can we make a maintenance safe how can we make maintenance safety look like a profit center to the business so that it invests in it like it does other parts of operations? Well, I, I've worked with lots of manufacturing, and I will tell you what um, the maintenance crew, the guys that are working all over the facilities, those types of guys are the ones that know what's going on they have the finger on the pulse of most organizations. And if you ask those maintenance guys, they will tell you they're awesome. I was told by an HR person that if I don't hit, get a little bit of an arrogant maintenance guy, then they're not worth their salt, right? Nice. So I really think that um, getting the maintenance guys involved up front and having them be ambassadors of change because they really care about their facilities. And that's the thing that's gonna evolve the culture, right? That type of caring for an organization. Um, so actually, I'm not sure I answered that question. Not, not exactly, not exactly. So there you've got HR talking with maintenance, but what if maintenance is saying that leadership isn't investing in maintenance? Oh, I see, I see, I see, I see. Okay, yeah. so that that is part of that cultural questionnaire. So. You know, if, if you ask the maintenance guys, hey, you know, what is a, a ultimate safety culture? And they say, well, you know, if they would invest in maintaining our machinery, right, or preventative maintenance more, then I could, you know, do my job better, right? That is a gap in our process and system. And what I've seen is that a lot of times leadership is doing stuff, but they don't communicate it, right? There's a gap in our communication. So we may be doing something. For example, I remember in a manufacturing facility, the QA team was right next to a bunch of presses and it was really loud and they just wanted a sound deadening curtain. 
and they put in requests and it, years went by and nothing ever came of it. But what they were doing is saving up money because a sound deadening curtain was like a million dollar investment and they had to forecast out to be able to put one up. Now, if they would have communicated this to that QA department and said, hey, hold on, we have to build our budget up and, and put this in there and you'll get your sound deadening curtain, right? It is oftentimes the conversation that's not being happened that impacts that the climate of the situation. So what we really need to do is have a conversation with that leadership and see if they're hearing us. Most of the time they are, they're just not having that conversation with those maintenance guys. I think there's a lot more layers to this question, so I'm going to keep it in mind as we go because they're looking for every opportunity they have to integrate safety into the bottom line of the company right. so that it, it becomes a, a budgetary priority. Right. I gotcha. All right. Well, I'm going to go through a couple more slides and we'll be able to weave the answer into that question a cool. little bit. So when I talk about uh, creating this culture of safety, I really look at three things and any organization can do this and you might be doing some of these already but one thing i think we've gotten away from is making safety about people we look at osha recordables we look at numbers um, we need to make safety about people if we make safety about people again it's going to take it to that different level it's not about rules regulations policies procedures it's about someone in your work family going home in worse shape than they came. And to do that, we need to care. And not just care, we need to act on that sense of caring. So I'm not suggesting that people don't care. What I am suggesting though, is that people don't act on that caring all the time. I mean, how many people on this call have ever seen somebody doing something that you thought was risky and not said something, right? So what we have to do is develop that actively caring culture to make safety about people. And if we do that, what we're going to do is develop trust. And trust is a cornerstone of every good culture that I've ever worked in. If you have trust in management, if the leadership trusts that what they're doing is putting people in the safest position, right? Trust is an all-around cultural characteristic. So let's go through these. Um, is safety about rules, regulations, policies, procedures, or is it really about family, our kids, the things that we'd love to do? Hopefully we'll be able to watch college football. Um, you know, so we think about how we motivate safety. Remember I asked that question, internal versus external? I think we focus so much on OSHA rules, regulations, policies, and procedures, and we leave out the why. We leave out the why we actually do safety in the first place. And if you want to propel your culture, we have to move away from the top-down, forcing people into the bottom-up involvement of people. And if we do that, it's going to be sustainable, and you're going to have that evolution. There's a lot of agreement from the audience, by the way, at this point, where if you talk about it from the personal and family level that people understand and have a different perspective. Yeah, I mean, there's so many examples. Uh, I've been through organizations where instead of saying our OSHA recordable rate went down, 
what they did at this giant safety convention for their the global company they had a thousand people in attendance they had like rows a through f stand up right and they said this is how many people we hurt last year right all right now d through f sit down this is how many fewer people we hurt this year and it really really impacted like the organization right that made it personal not just an so this idea of internal versus external really gets to these two words and you know we were talking about how important um, words are how we respond to things if you hold people accountable sure you'll get the behavior if officer friendly pulls on the highway right behind you you're going to go the speed limit because he's holding you accountable but when he leaves do you speed up so what we want to do is motivate it through the internal if you motivate people from the internal the responsibility is from the inside out versus outside in and that is what's going to help people believe it is uh, about the individual now i'm not saying we get rid of accountability because if people aren't doing what we're asking them to do we have to hold them accountable but that should not be the first play out of our playbook so instead of going up and saying hey you know it's osha rule 32.64 revision c would be wearing your safety glasses doing this task you can go up to them and try to motivate them from the inside out saying hey i know it's hot and humid i know those glasses are probably fogging up but i'd hate to see something happen in your eyes let's find a way we can get those things cleaned up and you can wear them right that is motivating them from the inside out so let's jump into this idea of caring and i know this might seem kind of um, soft but really it isn't because safety is all about caring how we care if we care enough to know about what they're going through and set up the situation to make it easier to do the safer thing we're going to create that culture of safety so this idea of actively caring isn't new right we we remember watching sesame street when we were kids and it's all about your friends in your neighborhood i think today we've gotten a little bit away from that right today is you know what are my friends doing well let me look up on facebook right my kids don't even use a phone anymore right it's all about social media so when i was in college and studying under scott geller at virginia tech we were really trying to figure out how to move beyond simply caring to acting on that sense of caring and i've seen examples in organizations in communities um i'll give you a quick example i was in portland and i saw this in a newspaper and, and kind of clipped this out but uh this is a park and this is kind of a, a mountainous uh pass up here and there was a bunch of people down here picnicking on this river and you know and when you go through different mountainous passes and they have that kind of snake you know road going up the mountain well this woman was going up this path and a truck was coming the opposite direction took the corner too sharp swerved in the middle of the lane and to avoid a head-on collision she swerved out of the way and end up rolling down the embankment and landed in the middle of this river upside down now there are people on the shore here 
saw the whole thing happen. And I want you to put yourself in that situation. You just saw this, this car tumble down the hill, land upside down, slowly sinking in the river. Would you be the one to jump in and save that person? I mean, we'd all think we'd like to do something about that. But what actually did happen is a guy that was riding a bike up here um, saw the situation, dove in, got the woman out, brought her back up on shore, resuscitated her, and ended up saving her life. Now, what was the difference between the people on the shore and the guy riding a bike? The guy on the bike acted on that internal sense of caring. I can guarantee that everybody on that shore felt the same way. But what was the difference? The guy on the bike was the EMT, emergency medical technician, you know, the guys on hospital ambulances, right? So he was trained. Uh, saving people was his day job, right? He knew what to do in emergency situations and he took action. So if we get people to have that sense of actively caring, um, nobody would ever walk by you doing something that you thought was risky that you wouldn't say something that's acting on that sense of caring and i've seen it um, i was down in pascagoula doing some work um, down there and i was talking to some of the guys that were around during katrina where they were standing on their roof of their house waiting to be rescued i mean it was crazy and i cared my heart went out to those people when i saw it on tv I had a couple of buddies that jumped in a pickup truck, filled up their pickup truck with water and power bars and drove down to New Orleans to help out. I didn't do that. I just simply cared. Right? I was in Canada. Anchor car went through a small town, derailed and literally caught the whole town on fire. They didn't have enough fire brigades in the province to help out. So they had people coming from all different provinces, people coming from across country to help out. So we see this on a day-to-day -day basis, but in the organization, if we focus so much on this accountability, we don't allow people to actively care. Now, the last thing I wanna talk about is this idea of trust. And I wanna ask you, is trust important safety? And in today's organizational climate, we really need to focus on developing trust. And when I was in college, I was part of a study. And the study was there was 10 companies that were doing really well in safety, 10 companies that were struggling. And my section of this grant work that was by NIOSH was to look at characteristics of this culture. And one thing that I focused on was this idea of trust. So trust is the firm reliance on the integrity, ability, or character of a person or a thing. So you can trust a, a car is gonna get you from A to Z, or you can trust a person, right? And what's interesting, when you talk about trust in people, you can trust in people's intentions, or you can trust in their behaviors. Now, we've all heard the phrase, if you're going to talk the talk, you have to walk the walk, right? So. I went in and I talked to those 10 companies that were doing well, 10 companies that were struggling, and I looked for differences. And then the companies that were doing really well, there was a pattern. So when it came to developing this culture of safety, when I asked the good companies, the ones that were doing really well, 
trust and management. What was more important, trust and management's intentions or trust in their behaviors? What do you think? So, a, yeah, so audience, you get to uh, chime in here. So what do you think is most important uh, for trust and management? Is it their intentions or is it their behaviors? Is it the walk the walk or the talk the talk? All right, we've got about half the vote in. And uh, there's no wrong answer here, by the way. So what is most important? Is it the intention or is it the actual behavior? All right, I'm going to give it just another couple seconds and close it down and then share the results. All right, here we go. So we say that 91% say it's the behavior versus the intention, Chuck. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> yes, right? Now, that I figured would be a, you know, one hypothesis I was testing, right? So a lot of times when it comes to management, they can talk all they want, but I want to see results. I want to see how they live it, right? Now, the rest of the story, what's really interesting is that we also asked, what about trusting your coworkers? What's more important to them? All right, team, let's give it another vote here. So yeah, thinking I mean, about it from the group. Hmm? Having trust in management, but what about your coworkers? Is it their intentions or their behaviors? And I, I suspect that uh, you're having us think about this here a little bit as we mm -hmm. answer, right? Yep. Yep, okay. We've almost got about half the audience in voting. And Chuck, I need to give you a little bit of a time check. So um, as we go through the remainder of the, of the presentation, keep an eye on the clock. Got it. All right, I'm gonna close our poll. We've got over half the audience and you've got 82% behavior and 18% intention. Oh, interesting. I can make an argument for both, but that's yes. why we did research. It was their intentions. So you remember I talked about this idea of actively caring? So if I'm just working with my buddies, if they're looking out for me, I'm gonna look out for them. It's their intentions. Fascinating, huh? So in those really good cultures, it's not so much what they do, it's their intentions behind it. So it's not just enough to get the leaders to walk the talk, we gotta develop this idea of looking out for each other, this idea of, making safety about people. That was important to those 10 companies that were doing really well in safety. So again, interesting, huh? Very, very cool stuff. Now, one aspect of a cultural evolution that I'm gonna talk about, and there's lots of them, but I thought I would talk about how leaders influence safety. So I just gave you a lot of the, the philosophy and concepts between climate and culture and my three ideas of evolving it, how do we put this into action? Well, what we need to do is get leaders to lead it. So we're gonna spend a little bit of time talking about leadership. And I think people often mistake management and leadership. Management is doing things right where leadership is doing the right things. I really think people confuse the two. I think we might have a lot of good safety managers, but not a lot of good safety leaders. 
and I think we really need to focus on safety leadership. We're good at holding people accountable. That's that management stuff, right? Leadership is from the inside out. Management is from the outside in. And here's another great quote. Today's companies are overmanaged and underled. John Cotter wrote Leading Change. If you haven't read that book, awesome book. Or actually one of his follow-ups is The Heart of Change. Um, we were just talking about this earlier. So these, these philosophies, right? How do we lead safety? I think when you ever supervise another person, right? They perform their jobs by creating output through the effort of others. That's a supervisor. And I think supervision is a combination of both management and leadership. So I'm not saying you shouldn't manage your employees, right? That's holding people accountable. Supervisors manage behaviors where um, uh, supervisors lead people. So really it's inspiring others. And how good are we at being inspiring safety leaders? If the only time you hear about safety is when you're screwing up, you're not leading safety, you're managing safety. How many times have you gone up and praised people for doing things safely, right? That is part of leading safety. It's really about getting that level of engagement. I think a lot of managers are involved in safety. They participate in safety meetings. They participate in doing audits, observations, inspections but I don't think they're truly engaged. And here's an example of what I mean by that. When it comes to the chicken and the peg, pig for breakfast, right? The chicken is just involved in breakfast, but the pig is truly engaged in breakfast. So how does this work? Let me give you a quick case study and then I'll open it up for some uh, Q&A. So this is a, a big global company that I did some work with. And we started off with a business unit that had a lot of incidents. They were read on the corporate scorecard. And there was a pretty good potential for improvement. And we went out and we did a couple of interventions to help them. So a lot of times when we were working with leadership, uh, safety was part of their goals the senior level leaders, all the way up to the corporate. Um, what we did though, is instead of just making about how many people got hurt, we made a whole half on leadership metrics. So how do they lead safety? So if safety is 20% of their overall score, scorecard, what they did had to be done before they would pay out on this. So leadership metrics must be met first or there was no other payout on the other half of it. So how did they do that? We did three things. We had people go out and do career observations and I'll give you a little bit more on that in a minute. Um, they did safety meeting participation and regional safety reviews. So what we did for the executives and directors and I'm talking about the C-suite all the way down to the VPs and directors, okay? They did crew visits. Now, you notice I said visits and not audits, observations, or inspections, because I'll give you an example. When I was doing this, I did a two-day workshop with the senior level executives and the CFO, chief financial officer, his name was Barney, and he's a, a, a great guy, but he is the, I don't know, 
prototypical CFO. You know, he wore a vest, a bow tie, pocket protector. He said, Chuck, I'm not comfortable going out and telling these guys what to do in the field. Right? That is not my gig. And I said, look, Barney, I don't want you to go out there and audit these guys. All I want you to do is have a conversation with them. So we relabeled it crew visits, crew conversations. Um, so the executives had to go out and do three crew visits per quarter, director six. Um, and then they had to do leadership engage, engagement activities. So if I just went up to them and I said, I need you to be more engaged, they'd be like, okay, I'm engaged. Well, what does that look like? So what we did beforehand is we got a group of people together and including the leadership, and we listed activities that could be, uh, that could help engage them. So here's a list of them. So pick any four of the following activities per year. Attend a safety meeting, participate in safety recognition events, um, create and implement proactive initiatives, and there's a variety of things. But these are actual activities that they demonstrate that they're engaged. So again, they had to do crew visits and they had to do engagement activities. Now for the managers and supervisors, they also had to do crew visits at a more frequent, right? And they also had to do engagement activities. So did that work? Well, <laughs> for the senior level executives, they said, again, Chuck, I don't know what I'm looking at. How am I gonna have a conversation with these guys? So I said, okay, I'm gonna give you four questions. So when you see a crew, I just want you to ask this question. What are you working on today? They'll be happy to tell you how good they are. What's the worst thing that could happen? What are you doing to prevent it? Keeping each other safe. And what can I do to help? So if you give that to Barney and say, can you ask these questions? Sure. He came back to me after doing these. He was the, mo the biggest advocate after that. Because he's like, Chuck, you wouldn't believe what these guys go through on a day-to-day -day basis. I was like, yeah, right, Barney? So these questions just put people in a conversation mode. So did it work? Well, before we started, they had about 200 crew visits per month after 1,300 crew visits per month. So for the managers and supervisors, their goal was to do 13,000 for the year. They knocked that out of the park, 15,000. Now, I would have bet my paycheck that the senior level executives met the goal on the nose. They only did exactly what they were asked. But again, shocked me. Their goal was 254 as a group. They did 420. And I think half of those were Barney getting out there in the field. It was crazy. So again, if you have these C-suite directors going out, having conversations, it made it hard for these guys not to be involved, engaged, right? But here's what I found. Since it was a quarterly goal, <laughs> it kind of went April, May, June. So at the end of the quarter, there was a whole bunch of crews that were getting you know, um, visited by all these senior level executives. So everyone hung low at the end of the quarter. Um, so we changed it up a little bit, but that was kind of a funny outcome of that. So did it impact the safety culture? So I feel comfortable talking about close calls near misses with a manager or supervisor. So the more times leadership observed an employee, the more likely they were to bring up a near miss. The employees proved more likely to believe his or her manager cares when she is observed. 
and leaders view crew observations as an opportunity to commend and encourage safe behavior. Interesting, huh? And then the gray box is not observed by supervisor versus observed by supervisor. You can see in every opportunity, if they were observed by a supervisor, manager, leader, they were a lot more favorable. So again, does leadership impact? It does. Now this is from the qualitative side. Quantitative, so before we started, you can see that they're kind of, you know, uh, at a standstill when it came to the recordable rate. Did it work? Yeah. Now, I'm not saying this was the sole thing. They did a variety of other things, right? I'm not taking total, you know, uh, that this process helped it, but it really kickstarted it because they really identified some of that. And they continued to do well um, from that point on. And they started having conversations more. And they started, instead of touting how many injuries they had, they started touting how many caring conversations they had. So every 7.5 minutes, somebody is having a caring conversation. And at-risk condition is corrected every 5.5 minutes. So they started giving these kind of metrics that really change the way people perceive safety. And another thing they're doing, and I'm, if you're interested in um, being part of a, a pilot project, uh, they started doing these pulse surveys where you only pulse a handful of employees from across the organization every once in a while. Um, so instead of doing one survey every two or five years, you just survey a handful of people and you get a whole heat map of culture. So we're working on an app to do something, something like this. How safe do you feel today? Something that's easy for them to respond to, right? My attitude towards safety today. Just something that is a little pulse to see how they're doing, right? My manager truly supports safety. If you make it easy for people to respond, especially in today's you know, app-friendly world, you're gonna be able to kind of assess the culture as they go. So these are some of the cultural pulse metrics that we're looking at. It's kind of a cool project. I'm really excited about it because we have all these analytics in the background. So, you know, the people's perceptions impact churn, uh, uh, unscheduled time off, incidents, uh, maintenance, all these things can impact an organization but nobody is really bringing all of this stuff together. And that's what analytics is all about. So I talked about a lot of stuff and we, there's a lot more that I can uncover. If you're really interested, I can uh, send you these slides and, and have conversations with you. But um, hopefully I gave you some you know, things to think about. And really my emphasis is really getting away from reacting to injuries and start creating this culture of safety. So, thank you. Thank you oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks for the invite. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. We have a lot of predictive thinkers in the audience, and I think they would appreciate the next step on putting these suggestions together into a predictive model. Is there a place on your website, perhaps, where you talk a little bit more about that? I do. There's there's quite a few uh, articles on there that that we've done. And if you're interested, you can always give me a, a shout, email, or phone since I'm still kind of quarantined. I'm not traveling. <laughs> I'd be happy to 
have any conversations with you, but that in this world of big data, we need a way of collecting all this information and really predicting where machines are going to break down, where employees are going to churn, where we're going to have an incident, so we can get in front of it instead of waiting for something to break down, leave, or get hurt. Yep. Yep. I think people are particularly interested in avoiding the finger pointing culture. So I might have you answer that real quick and then we need to close out. So how can we prevent negative culture from creeping in and deterring the true safety culture? So I really think one of the things that we can do is teach people how to coach versus police. So when you're going out and you see someone doing something risky, stop and think, how can I motivate that, pe that person from the inside out? How can I have a more fact-finding, caring conversation with that person? You see someone standing at the top rung of a ladder, and instead of going up and shaming and blaming, right, stop and take a minute to think, why does that make sense? All right, well, it's a Friday afternoon. He's getting ready to get off of work. He needs to get this light bulb changed. There's not a right-sized ladder in this part of the company. We need to go way on the other side so maybe we can get better ladders. And this guy's been a maintenance guy forever. Right, so when you go and have a conversation with them, instead of saying, you know, it's a rule to be not standing on top rung of a ladder, bring it to the inside. Hey, you know what? I know you want to get that light bulb changed, but I'm a little concerned that you might fall. Um, and I know there's not any ladders in, on this side of the company. Maybe we can get some stored on this side of the organization, right? So having that caring conversation develops a better way of communicating this information instead of shaming, blaming, and then training, which is absolutely ineffective. Right. I'm going to have you forward to the next slide. I want to invite today's audience to come back in a couple of weeks because we have a panel a session where these three folks, John Burnett, the fellow on the top left, Greg Perry on the top right, and Therese Van Loon, so are all hardcore reliability guys. And they're going to be talking us through the PF curve so that we can better understand the failure modes of equipment that we're looking at and how to map the, um, the signatures that we're measuring depending on the type of equipment and uh, using the PF curve to guide that. And then if you'll forward one more slide, Chuck. There we go. When I close today's webinar down, a survey will pop up and we'd really love your feedback. So don't go away just just yet when I close the webinar down take a moment answer the survey give us your feedback and then if you do want to get a certificate of attendance make sure to click that answer otherwise thank you so much for your time today Chuck I really appreciate it this was excellent and I think there's a lot more information to be gained from your site and your articles so I appreciate you sharing all of that the audience also says thank you excellent good luck on your cultural evolutions Indeed. All right. Thank you very much, everyone. I'm going to close the webinar now, but we'll see you next time. Take care.